0: Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our Year of Reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Ayshan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Poésy, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen, And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. When Michael Pepiat suggested Francis Bacon appoint a biographer, the artist responded that to tell his story would take a Proust. It turns out he was half right. It took two. After their Perlitzer Prize-winning biography of de Kooning, Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan have researched and written what has already been hailed by both The Times and the FT, as the definitive biography of one of the most radical and unsettling painters of the 20th century. Bacon lived a long, eventful life, and Francis Bacon's Revelations is a big book, but the writer's narrative flair, insight and meticulous research have made it an extraordinarily compelling and, excuse the pun, revealing read. In certain ways, Francis Bacon did a lot to evade future biographers, but the fact he proved unable to evade Stevens and Swan is something for which we and he should be grateful Mark, Annalyn, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Um, I want to begin by just saying what an absolutely wonderful book um, I found, Revelations. I think it's actually the first extensive biography of an artist that um, I've, I've ever read. I've read a lot of um, obviously biographies of, of writers, and I, so I went into it not really knowing. Um, what to expect, apart from the fact that several people had already enthused enormously about the uh, the biography to me, um, but as I say, I found it absolutely absolutely wonderful and uh, compelling read, and I think as much to do with your writing as to do with the um, the the intrigue of uh, Francis Bacon himself um, now, as I said, you wrote and indeed won the Pulitzer Prize for a biography of de Kooning but could you talk a little bit about what attracted you to Francis Bacon as a subject, and how this project got uh, got off out of the starting blocks?
1: I think if you're writing a biography, uh, you want to be drawn to the subject for several different reasons, mm-hmm. perhaps not just one. And both de Kooning and Bacon uh, have, in addition to very interesting painting, uh, they 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 were emblematic figures in their cultures. They mm-hmm. they stand for something important uh in the 20th <clears throat> the 20th century excuse me um and so so they their lives are layered with with different kinds of meaning from the very personal to the very abstract from painting to the life itself and so they 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 can they continue to reveal themselves mm-hmm. subjects like that it's not there are certain painters who are very great at what they do but who don't have that quality um bacon and de kooning both do
2: Mm. Well, there's a life beyond the studio. You know, that's that's the compelling thing about, about both de Kooning and Bacon. And you know, that's not all that common uh, among artists in general that they have a larger than life presence in the general culture.
0: Mm. Is that is that is that so? I mean, the sort of because often sort of we have this sort of cliche view of an artist of having kind of um, I guess the kind of the bohemian life in a way, and sort of you can imagine the bohemian life <laughs> leading to lots of. Um, interesting stories and intrigues, but has that been your experience that sort of maybe some of the mo- more interesting artists for their work are perhaps less interesting as as characters?
1: Well, as you say, there have been a lot of bohemian artists. That's uh, not so unusual, yeah. and those stories uh, ha- have been told many times. Uh, the thing, what's different about Bacon is that he really set the dark edge of 20th century art and 20th mm-hmm. century. Art, uh, the 20th century itself, is a very dark one. So uh, it's immediately interesting, for reasons um, apart from simply his art or his personality or his character, that he did that, that he set Mm -hmm. this dark edge. Why, you want to know. How did he do that? What does that mean? Um, He was also a homosexual in a period uh, when many people remained closeted, and he he never hid that. Mm -hmm. That's also interesting. That has a kind of symbolic import or... A thrust about the about the 20th century and then yes there's all these uh, personal things that are intriguing his his persona that he developed all over the years this this uh, this strange bohemian creature not entirely true but fascinating that uh, that we explore in the book um mm-hmm. so there's many different levels you see that and, and it it it, it unfolds
2: Yes. And also with Bacon, Um, you know, he was part of this so-called Bohemian world, the world of Soho, you know, and and the Colony Room. But he was also part of a sort of the academic higher literary worlds of Mm -hmm. England and part of the sort of French Mandarin culture in Paris. And not that many artists really can go across that divide with such smoothness as Bacon. You know, he was an intellectual, uh, a great reader. Um, so he had an mm. a, a intellectual private life that, you know, a lot of people just who are otherwise creative just don't have.
0: Mm. There's a lot of points in what you both just said that I want to pick up th- throughout our conversation. But just coming back to this idea of him as a, the Bacon persona, which I think it's towards the end of the book, um, you compare the kind of dramatic persona he created to the sort of dramatic persona that Oscar Wilde created and the sort of almost – it, it, because of the the dates of their um, of Wild's death and Bacon's birth, it's almost it almost felt like sort of Wild was kind of passing on the the, the baton somehow to uh, to Francis Bacon in the way that you told it. But that when you're when you're researching and writing a biography of somebody who did work so hard in, in quite a few different ways, which we'll, we'll perhaps unpick to create this dramatic persona, how much of a challenge is it for you? to, to unpick it yourselves?
2: Well, I think that was a huge challenge because, uh, you know, Bacon uh, hid so much of, so much of his, his public acting was based upon, um, you know, drugs and alcohol getting himself revved up. You know, he was fundamentally an incredibly shy mm-hmm. Uh, a man that went all the way back to being an asthmatic child, a misfit in Anglo-Irish society. And uh, I, I think that's one of the, the surprises of the book when we teased out the extent, just how much he relied upon um, sort of medication of all kinds mm. to let him dance through the nights.
1: Mm. Well, it wasn't, and it wasn't just medication. I mean, he 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 needed the persona as a way to answer the questions that he found, I think, both intrusive and, Dull in a way mm-hmm. when when he was uh, becoming well known, he he wanted a program, he wanted a a, a way to a net a way to mm-hmm. describe himself, and he repeated himself and he honed it with David Sylvester's help. His amanuensis, really uh, they developed this persona, mm-hmm. and the persona itself it's not it's not a false thing. It's a kind of wonderful creation, in and of itself. It's not it's it's true in its way, mm-hmm. just as his actual feelings in life. Are true in their way, and there's all kinds of intermixture between them. Uh, and just in a book like this, uh, you you don't say one is wrong and one is right. You don't say you've discovered this to be true and that to be false. You show them both existing simultaneously, and they are both true in their way.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we we teased out things uh, as well. So in the in the very last part of uh, Bacon's life, you know, he uh, fell in love with this very cultivated. A uh, Spanish man, mm-hmm. Jose Capello, <clears throat> and Jose Capello um, told us some of the most poignant uh, examples of Francis Bacon before he would be going to dinner. And he was so nervous with a sort of the, the French potentates and what have you, that he would actually write questions so that he would know that he mm. could have, have a question or two at hand. Then he could you know, mm. present that to the dinner party conversation, then sit back and relax because he had done his bit. So, you know, that's quite a telling detail. And mm. no one really had tried to get beneath the mask, behind the mask, as it were before in any detail.
1: And it's an extraordinary invention, right? I mean, he—he he, this this persona that somehow captivated people's imaginations, and books have been written about it. In effect, uh, is a is a is a lovely creation. It's a it's a carapace. It's a it's a shell, but it's a lovely one, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it it protects him.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I found uh, particularly striking about the book was how it felt that you were being very careful. Not to um, not to speculate about uh, summers like Francis's motivations and stuff. It felt very much you were sticking to you know rigorously to what people told you, what was written. Like sort of that there wasn't really. I I guess it must have been so tempting to kind of essentially attempt to psychoanalyze Francis Bacon um, during the writing. Um, And so feel free to to bat this question back. But it just occurred to me um, that. About this this thing of the creation of the persona, I kept kind of fluctuating between thinking he was kind of essentially myth making of like trying to sort of uh he like really wanted to control what people thought of him and to sort of establish Francis Bacon the story the legend for for history, so to speak, and then another part particularly towards the end of his life, and particularly the arrangements he put in place for his funeral or lack of funeral in a way. Suddenly, made me think that oh, perhaps it it isn't about sort of establishing something, but more about dispersing something, sort of disappearing. Um, would you, did you have a sense that it was sort of one or the other of those, or or perhaps a bit of both?
1: I I think he had a very difficult time uh, deciding who exactly he was. He mm. was born as you know, into very wealthy circumstances, but he felt an outsider there. Uh, he felt an outsider as a homosexual. And he also felt an outsider as an artist because mm-hmm. he was self-taught largely. Mm-hmm. He was not part of the establishment. So from the very beginning, he was always inventing. He was inventing himself. You know, He invented himself as a painter, as a man, as a persona. And where the actual bacon is there, well, that's an interesting question. And I think that we were we wanted to be modest in in a way and humble about finally locating where the real francis bacon Mm -hmm. is uh he's probably betwixt and between all these things Mm -hmm. you know um and it's uh it's arrogant to 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 uh impose uh some psychoanalytic reading or get all pompous about sadomasochism Mm -hmm. it's better just to show isn't it Mm -hmm. i mean if you're going to make a portrait don't make it all about annler and me Make it about your subject and give him some air, give him some space. Don't but, tell but to you about
2: it. also to your point though um adam he created what mark called the carapace the the, mm-hmm. the bacon mystique uh essentially so he could disappear behind it you know mm-hmm. i mean it was he he as as we write the book he always knew that he was the most important ma- person in the room so he had to kind of live up to that but so once he set that in place just like oscar wilde he was performing but then that was very convenient wasn't it because who was the real bacon, who was the figure behind that, you know, that mm-hmm. mask.
0: And, and in your, and, in, yeah, sorry, Mark, go on.
1: Well, I was going to say, he loved to enter that persona, you know, he, and it's not, it's again, it's not a lie. When he was having fun in Soho, when he was performing for a journalist, uh, he was having a grand time. Mm-hmm. He was being himself in a way. He, it's, it's the way actors are. Actors are often most themselves when they're not being themselves, but they're also somehow themselves in their role. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's complicated. It's not it's not it's not as if he was pulling the wool over your
0: eyes. In um in in your quest to kind of to, to, to discover um Francis Bacon, um I, I I have I realized when reading this, I have no idea about the biographer's craft. Uh so for example, just a moment ago you mentioned that you talked to Jose Capello. Um would you just be able to talk a little bit about the sort We didn't of, um, we didn't
1: actually talk directly at, to him. Oh, the, excuse the, me. Uh, we, we talk through friends, but we feel that we have a very clear uh, uh, understanding. Clear uh-huh. understanding.
0: But, but this is, this is my, this is my, um, essentially the heart of my question is, Could you, would you be able to uncover a little bit for, for me and for our listeners, like the sort of the biographer's craft a little bit, like how you pulled together um, this story of Francis Bacon, because there are moments where you're sort of, you will quote from letters or things like that, but there are other moments where the story, you know, it flows as kind of like a succession of facts and events and exchanges And uh, I'd be very curious to know, yeah, just a little bit about the sort of pulling it together, and particularly both of you working on it. Like, do you divide roles in the research and the writing or is it periods of Bacon's life or, or or some other some other way?
2: Well, I, let, let me start a, a little bit with this, because I actually teach uh, biographical writing. Mm-hmm. And, and so there are sort of different sort of posts and signposts along the way for what a good biographer is trying to do to develop the character. Um, of course, there's all that arduous research uh, that goes into any project like this. But, um and Dell, the great biographer of Henry James, said that uh, modern biography is a, sort of a combination of Sherlock Holmes and Freud. And by that, he means the kind of forensic uh, research details. But then the, you have to sort of go, you know, take that to the next level to try mm-hmm. to sort of get your way, feel your way into what makes your subject tick. And so... I can't stress enough how important narrative flow is in biography, Mm -hmm. and something that we work on really, really hard. That's why these books take so long, because uh, without a a sort of a a sort of a bringing a creative lens to bear on your subject and writing it in 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 a very compelling way, you just have a compilation of facts Mm -hmm. so you have to do that sort of psychological sort of letting your your the person kind of steep inside you as well but even before you begin thinking about the writing Mm
1: -hmm. i i would say that it's um these great big biographies a lot of them are baggy monsters right Mm -hmm. just 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 uh addicts you don't want to spend too much time in (laughs) dusty places boring places, um, uh, but other ones can play the part of uh, of what we no longer have in our culture, which is a, that feeling that a that a great baggy nineteenth-century novel can give you mm. of uh, of of a lot of different characters, secondary characters brought to life, um, a primary character who is born and dies. How satisfying is that? You know, to have to have a life um, a kind of in full that way. Uh, very old-fashioned, mm. but it's very sad. Very David
0: Copperfield.
1: Um, and th- that's right, and, Mary. and, and <laughs> you, you can you can you can provide that sort of uh, that 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 wonderfully capacious and generous feeling, I think, in a biography. Mm. And the art of it is it, it is a very tricky form, much trickier than you would think, because you, as Annalyn says, you you very much want to uh, ha- develop as much narrative as you can, and that means, for example, if you someone tells you an anecdote you don't just quote the person telling Mm -hmm. you the anecdote you narrate it in some form Mm -hmm. uh so that you have a sense of line developing almost theatrically in in the book so that people want to read they want to turn the page then you have to do things like change focal length you know Mm -hmm. you you pull back you look Mm -hmm. at the larger culture you come in close there's a mid-range you adjust that you change it and that keeps people from i think getting weary i mean it It'd be very tiring, right, to to always be at the same focal length. If you're always right up against the person, or if you're always far away from the person, neither is ideal. Uh, they're they're ideal when they're mixed properly. So all those kinds of things go mm. into writing a book like this,
2: and particularly for for a uh, biography of an artist, though, you also have to address how you, uh, you know, how you talk about the works, mm-hmm. and mm. uh, if you. Notice in our our book, you know, some works are interpolated into the text, but others are pulled out for like a, a little moment, a little moment in the sun, as it were. Really, some of, of my ground. favorite yeah. bits in the book. And and that that's both a way to not clog up the text, you know, because mm. you, otherwise you'd be toggling. You know, it's 1962, and George Dyer has come into Francis Bacon's mm-hmm. life. And oh, by the way, it's his portraiture the d- d- decade. So you're you know you're handling sort of two storylines at the same time. So that is one of the um, the ways we sort of came upon to deal with this. And and also Richard Ellman, our our great forebear. Mm-hmm. So many biographers love Richard Ellman, You know, the biographer of of uh, James Joyce, and in uh, in my particular case, Oscar Wilde, my
0: mm-hmm. favorite
2: all-time biography. And if you look at that, he sort of did the same thing. He'd have this lively discussion, almost in a Wildean tone, very sparkling uh, narrative. And then he would have a sort of shorter shorter section where he Mm -hmm. would address, you know, Lady Windermere's fan or or what have you. And so, you know, to your question about uh, biographical writing, those are all very tricky things that you have to resolve Mm -hmm. as you embark on one of these so you don't become the baggy monster that, you know, Mark mentioned.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and Adam, you, you mentioned that you've read lots of literary biographies. I don't know if you're like me, but when when I read that kind of biography, and then you get to the reason you're actually reading the biography of this person, the work, the mm-hmm. book, right? When you get to that, very often there's a sort of indigestible narrative killing yes. uh, description of the of the plot, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. you say, oh, gosh, I read that book once and I don't really remember, so I we'll have to read it again. And you can't remember the names of the characters. And, mm. and it just interrupts the, the, mm. the flow. It, it's, it's just, it's artistically uh, an unhappy juxtaposition. Mm. And it shouldn't be, right? Because this is the reason you're reading the book to begin with. So as Ellen said, our solution to that was to um, put, uh, uh, to mention pictures briefly in the text and then at length after the text. So people felt that there was some separation. Another thing that does is it allows when we look at works of art of course we all look at them very individually and uh, uh, with different kinds of lyrical or not intent mm-hmm. and so it allowed us to be more personal in that in the, in there and mm-hmm. and you know when, when we were describing a great painting painting uh, bacon uh, we don't we're not trying in a biographical sense to be definitive there mm-hmm. it's not uh, supposed to be a uh, a, a, an academic treatise. It's supposed mm. to be a, an awakening to the art, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the way people do naturally to give you that feeling. So you get that feeling in the book of of awakening to pictures.
0: It was very much that feeling. I think, as I said, it was one of my favorite, they were my, one of my favorite moments in the book because it felt that they sat in a very sort of, what's, I'm not sure what the word is, maybe harmonious or sort of symbiotic way with the chapters that have preceded it. And it sort of allowed, it felt sort of as, as readers, it kind of gave us space to, to have a sort of uh, an impression and a reaction to a work of art, yeah, sort of outside, or not, not, not removed from the life, but just a little bit with a little bit of distance as one might. Space, in yes. Yeah.
1: And again, that's modesty. That, that's a certain humility in the, in the biographers, I mm-hmm. think. Um, one thing we often say is you, you really mustn't reduce the art to the life or the life to the art. Mm-hmm. But you want them to live together in a way that sort of feels natural and right so that. Mm-hmm the reader will have been uh, adjusting and thinking about and considering the life, then here will be a discussion of the work of the art, but nobody's saying it's just because he had a bad day that he made this painting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never so simple. Uh, We used to say about de Kooning that uh, a lot of people have bad mothers, but they don't all turn into de Kooning. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, that space, that feeling of some space between the art and the life Mm -hmm. is, is a, Wonderful feeling, I think.
2: The other thing I hope that we accomplish by break, breaking out the paintings is to bring up some of the lesser known dimensions of Bacon's art. Um, you know, people, for example, don't really know or celebrate the, the self-portraits in anywhere near the mm. way they do uh, Bacon's famous, big, huge, grand triptychs. But in fact, uh, Bacon was one of the you know great <clears throat> portrait painters of the 20th century. And that began in the 60s and continued to the end of his life. He also painted uh, late landscape paintings, which are you know quite striking, like blood on pavement, things like that. So we had the ability, uh, by you know picking selecting the paintings as we did, to sort of hit upon these dimensions which really aren't usually covered in any kind of way with Francis Bacon.
0: Mm. Just one um, final question on the sort of the the biographer's art. With with the sort of the de Kooning project before, um, I mean, on the on the very sort of surface uh, 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 view of it, you could say these are two sort of like quite similar projects. They're artists whose lives were similar sort of lengths, expand similar sort of uh, period. Well, almost almost exactly contemporaneous period in history. Uh, but I'm just curious mm-hmm. to know in the sort of the research of it, particularly the gathering of it, and access to. To to people mm. and to, to archives and things like that, were they quite similar experiences? Could you use a lot from what you'd learned while writing the Takuning one with Bacon, or did you find that because the character was so different and the, uh, the art so different that you it was sort of it required sort of relearning uh, the art again?
2: I would say no. I would say that they were sort of closer in feeling than not. One key difference, however, was with de Kooning, the the trail, the old world part of his life, you know, that he left as a stowaway, um, had been virtually erased. Whereas Mm -hmm. with Bacon, and luckily for us, there was much more in the way of the sort of early Anglo-Irish world that we could sort of delve into in Tangier. People were still around. They were still willing to talk. So I would say... Uh, happily, I felt that we got more uh, nitty-gritty detail mm-hmm. uh, for Bacon than we did for de Kooning, try as we might.
1: Although, you know, it's very sad, but not nearly enough. I mean, the, uh, both de Kooning and Bacon, um, there were people alive for a very long time uh, who could have spoken mm-hmm. in a most interesting way about their about their childhoods. And they really were never consulted or interviewed. So we did find in, in each case, there's just enough, I think, mm-hmm. uh to, to, to make the picture full. And you were talking about technical issues. That's another technical issue. You don't want the beginning of a biography, you don't want any part of a biography to feel thin, mm-hmm. you know. So if you have too much information about the end, you have to you have to tighten that in a way so that it doesn't overwhelm the beginning. Mm-hmm. There are people who disagree with that. There are people who say, well, you shouldn't uh, – who cares about the early life uh-huh. of someone before they become known? Mm. But that that's not how I feel. I think it's – It, it you, you really want a portrait of the life. It's mm. a portrait, and it includes all those years.
0: It sort of made, you, made you know, it, I'll, I'll... No, go
2: on. No, I was just Okay. I was just going to say, um, you know, people would look at our book and, and several English reviewers uh, called it a thunker of a biography. Um, but, you know, there's so much more we could have put in there, you uh-huh. know.
0: Um, but,
2: but, the, but the, you know, the one essential thing, I think, again, to in the art of and craft of biography is it's really important not to hobble yourself initially um, mm-hmm. with sort of saying, right, okay, now I, we've got to move on because, you know, there's there's too much there and then there so what you have to do i think is just write it in the most kind of expansive again narrative 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 and mm-hmm. then you can cut But, um, you know, uh, crafting one of these uh, big biographies, you know, takes a lot of time. And I'm sure that one of your questions would be, why did it take 10 years? A lot of it has to do is once you always you acquire all that information, then you begin to shape it. Mm -hmm. And you asked how we worked. It's it's seamless. And but we go through six or seven complete drafts of the Mm -hmm. book before it's finally published.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I for me 10 years seems like a perfectly reasonable amount of time to spend on a book like this I uh I spent seven years writing a novel and that sort of didn't require hardly any research at all so I could kind of so 10 years <laughs> seems like a very um <laughs> it's all quite a swift uh
2: <laughs> thank you Adam thank
0: you <laughs> and just to that 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 point about sort of uh people said oh you know who cares about the childhood like maybe it's a, again a sort of uh an interest in the sort of psychoanalytic world or something like that but I sort of is it it the old Jesuit saying, you know, give me a child before he's seven and I'll show you the man or something like that. It's that sort of thing of, and I found that very much with, with Francis Bacon, That sort of like, there was so much. And again, without being prescriptive on your part, so much about those early years in uh, Ireland that, that seemed to kind of to to resurface in the character in sort of quite, uh, quite unusual and quite unexpected ways throughout, uh, throughout his life.
1: Well, Bacon himself said that he, thought that artists in general remain closer to their childhoods than Hmm. other people do. And interestingly, you know, he never went back to Ireland. And you can look at that two ways. You can say, well, he was bored by Ireland. Or you could say he was too not bored by Ireland. Mm -hmm. It was too, he just didn't want to put himself through the intensity uh, of the response that would be required of him if he went back to his childhood places. I think the latter is likely the truth here. And yes, I don't see how you can do a portrait in in literary terms without the early, early years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a mystery to me that people think only the only the famous years are important.
0: And yet Bacon, I mean, not necessarily had lots of famous years because I, I suppose he was relatively. I mean, he was in he was in his uh, early 40s, if I remember rightly, before he had like the big uh, breakthrough with. Um, three studies for the figures at the base of a crucifixion. But one yeah. thing that struck me is just coming back to this, this idea of the, um, the kind of the David Copperfield sort of long narrative arc. Um, even though I went into reading this book with a sort of a broad sense of uh, Francis Bacon's dates. I mean, I remember, I have vague memories. I would have been about 12 or 13 at the time of, of him uh, passing away. But one thing that just almost floored me um was when suddenly he's in Montparnasse in Paris in the 1920s. And then just seeing the sort of the scope of this this artist's life. And maybe, you know, maybe it's a similar thing with, with de Kooning in as much as sort of somebody who lives that long over such an eventful century as the 20th century will sort of, you know, have all of these uh, sort of great sort of right. historical marking points. But yeah, there was something about the sort of the the realisation that, Bacon was around at this time, in a time obviously for the history of this bookshop as well, which has a you know a, a, which carries a lot of weight. It just suddenly something reconfigured in my mind about Francis Bacon as like the man and the artist. And um, was it was that something that's kind of happened to to you in the research and writing of this book? Like was was it sort of your your, your impressions you had going into it of Bacon as a man and artist like re, reconfigured when you? realized where he was at certain moments in time.
2: Well, I I, th- I think one of the interesting things uh, for me was uh, how shy the young Francis was when he was in Montparnasse, you know, mm. th- there were all of those, as we say, Kiki was swanning down the, the boulevard and, you know, everybody, Pablo was having his coffee at, at the, the uh, cafe, Um but, you know, he was paralyzingly shy at that point, which is one reason why he went into the design world. It was almost a, like deflection because, you know, he was he at that point, he had hardly had a drawing lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it is interesting, you know, to, to see years later uh, uh, Bacon come back to Paris and be mm-hmm. the king. You know his, his uh, the Grand Palais retrospective. Uh, what an amazing thing that happened in in the space of his life with French culture, which he absolutely loved. You, you know, yeah. I mean, it was his favorite. Well, you know, and, and
1: you're you're right that uh, I don't think we knew going in that there would be these sort of sounding bells of, of big century moments in, in his in his life. Uh, I mean, he went as a as a, as a person. As a person who now would be an, an early student in college, a university, he was in Weimar,
2: mm-hmm. Berlin. Yeah, 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 you
1: know, one of one of the one of the truly essential places, not for long, and then also in Montparnasse, yeah. uh, another e- equally vital and truly essential place. Now he was doing it as a very young man, and and there's a sort of strangely displaced, and he tried to erase these things a mm. bit, but there he was, right? I mean, there he was at those in those two places right then when mm-hmm. they were at their at their keenest point
2: and, he, and also it was the this, intersection there,
1: well there's this quality of fate that kind of uh it, it sounds sentimental mm-hmm. but uh again and again there's this strange sort of again it's like a tolling bell that, that you know george dyer's death right at the mm-hmm. at the this like a sacrifice when he's having his great show and Peter Lacey's death, these things happen in, in a way that has seems to have something to do with, with fate, which has to do with his love of Greek theater and all mm. those things. You wonder how does that come together and how lucky are we as biographers to have a life that uh, unfolds in that way?
2: And we also brought up the design aspect of his life, you know, because right. while yeah. everybody was focusing in later life on Picasso and Man Ray and, you know, everybody, all the artists who were in Mopano's, also, there's the Eileen Gray part, you know, mm-hmm. the wonderful Anglo-Irish uh, uh, architect and designer who's now getting her due. But you know, th- there was a, a similarly very, very vibrant and important world of uh, design going on in Paris, and it was the moment when Art Deco was ending, and this, mm-hmm. you know, was this this new very modern. Uh, sort of uh, chrome furniture was coming up, and to have bacon at that intersection of those worlds and really no one had ever uh, really delved into that because Bacon, as Mark said, tried desperately to hide that uh, design part of his career so yes, what a moment, early moment he had in Paris, and then of course, the later moments that went, when he, that he had in Paris, mm-hmm. including that the final you know apotheosis of bacon with the grand palais show.
0: Mm-hmm. That that thing about sort of hiding the design—it it, was—and again, this is sort of, I guess, projection from my part. But when you see the kind of, particularly his use of kind of uh, frames and sort of grids and things like that in some of his work, that sort of because I, I had no idea about the, the the design part of his history, and so sort of that suddenly, I wouldn't say made sense because made sense that makes it sound like I have a sort of an overarching understanding and everything clicked into place, which is not is not really. How, how it was but so suddenly there's this thing of oh okay you know there's this sort of you can at least yes yeah, sort of draw out the thread so you can make make the connections between uh, these early things Certainly. yeah there,
1: there, there is a there's a deep connection between his design and his his painting and <clears throat> it's that uh, um, he was very interested in the western room really you can mm. think of it that way that uh, he began by trying to design an ideal a perfected room to escape that claustrophobic English culture that he he could bear, so he tried to create a new room in Paris and also in London. Mm-hmm. That didn't work, he, or it was not satisfying to him. And then, if you look at his paintings, you see that they are rooms. They mm-hmm. are theatrical rooms, very often abstracted rooms. And you see bits of uh, of his early design, those geometries, uh, making transparent boxes. So they it never entirely went away. He didn't. Uh, it's not as if he erased. in in some fundamental way, his interest in, in the design of a room. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: He just hid that his own, uh, you know, back professional background. Uh, A very interesting little known fact, you know, is that to the end of his life, Bacon had a T-square in his studio. So he could actually mark off things in the way that uh, graphic designers do. Mm. Um, Bacon was very clever in hiding that part of his life.
0: Yeah. 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 It's, it's it's really um, yeah. Just thinking about the sort of the, the 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 way that sort of he attempted to sort of to hide these things. I mean, the, the destruction of so many paintings, as well. I mean, again, like as, as I said, somebody who hasn't read um, uh, sort of artist biographies before. Like, I'm assuming this level of destruction of work is unprecedented, or at least sort of it's it's uncommon for for, for an artist to to not only sort of yeah try and hide parts of their you know, their personal life or their professional history, but also to destroy so many of their... their, their... Well, you know, Giac- Giacometti,
1: Giacometti was very much like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giacometti being one of the few artists that Bacon actually admired, mm-hmm. uh, modern and contemporary artists. Um, there are artists who who are perfectionists who feel they can never quite get the image right. Um, there's that famous Balzac story too, I'm forgetting the name of it, about the artist, he, he finally can only paint the foot you know, he can never you can never get the whole thing because you're so driven by trying to get the perfect image and bacon um, uh, he really uh, he since he was self-taught largely mm-hmm. he relied a lot on chance and so he was and he also didn't want to rely on line mm-hmm. uh, he wanted flesh and the figure to come to life through the play of the paint mm-hmm. and he depended he had tricks but he depended on chance there too and if it didn't work. He was a gambler. He was happy. He actually took pleasure in destroying his work. He thought it was, you know, a very satisfying thing to do to sacrifice his work. And and there, you know, there's a certain element of masochism in that too. It's interesting. That there, to, there uh, are
2: some bad. I was just going to add that there's some uh, very bad Bacon's uh, that made it into uh, into the, the canon because he was forced at the end to just let the works out of his studio. You know, he often. Uh, painted right before a show, just right up against the deadline, he'd go into this frenzy and uh, so those were th- those were the times when when bacon would let out some works that otherwise he would ruthlessly excise
0: you mentioned mark that um uh, he uh, he admired giacometti um, and that was one one thing that um bacon was very sort of reticent about uh acknowledging uh that he you know his showing admiration for other artists perhaps it wasn't because there wasn't a great deal of it for for many other artists but also acknowledging influences (laughs) as well and that's do you think that was in some way connected to the fact that he was um he was self-taught in a way that he didn't sort of uh he didn't want to sort of place himself in a sort of uh, a school or a lineage or, or something like that
1: well yes i mean he he's he's uh He's a funny case because he's not a a primitive artist in any way. You know, he came from a sophisticated background, but he's also a self-taught person and an autodidact. Mm -hmm. And as you know, self-taught autodidacts are often um, strangely insecure and arrogant and superior (laughs) at the same time. You know, they've had to create their own academy, their own school, their own style, their own way of Mm -hmm. life. And uh they seem to be in a way defending it all the time from uh, implicit criticisms, intended or not. And so he uh he was uh it's the actually the least um, uh admirable thing about him really is is that he was he could be very ungenerous about mm-hmm. his contemporaries. Um but he also probably meant it. You know, he thought, Well, they're just what was the line Anlin about uh that he said about Larry Rivers? Um
2: Oh yes. she's uh, not he, he thought he thought
1: that she, deep she, end, she's, yeah. She's not a deep not end girl. Deep end like girl. Myself. Yeah, not 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 a deep end girl like myself. Uh, she's <laughs> and, just mining down, mining down the sidewalks of life. You know, uh, min, so yeah, miniing
2: along the sidewalks of life, mining I mean, along so, the sidewalks of life. So he,
1: he just didn't understand why you'd want to sit around painting flowers or 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 having fun on the surface when there was this emergency, which mm. is called life around. <laughs> around. So he, he just didn't, you know, he just, I couldn't really see what the point was. Uh, and of course, I think a reasonable person would disagree with him. It's lovely to look at a nice flower pot. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but, you know, the, the other uh, important thing to know about uh, Bacon is, you know, he didn't admire other artists very much. He, his best friend for decades was Lucian Freud, and there was a real artistic connection there. And, you know, to a certain extent, Frank Auerbach. But, you know, Interestingly, there never really was a School of London. Uh, mm-hmm. Kittai later, uh, you know, sort of made up this name for a, a, a famous review of the School of London. And there's a famous posed photograph of the the so-called School of London artists, which included Bacon and Tim, uh, Frank Auerbach, Tim Behrens, Lucian Freud. But it was all made up. Everybody mm-hmm. knew it was made up. John Deacon took the photograph, but... You know, there was no School of London. So in that sense, you know, Bacon really c- couldn't look to other artists. You know, there wasn't the same sense of the artist in the 20s mm-hmm. in France or de Kooning and the abstract expressionist world in New York. He really was kind of sui generis. You know, he, he nobody in London painted anything like Francis Bacon.
0: Hmm. And one 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 area that he did acknowledge uh, influences, or at least um, that's the impression I, I got from the book, is literary influences. Now, one, one of the things that fascinated me reading the biography was his his literary interest, his passion for books, and the and the writers he admired. Now, a great regret of mine is that there was a uh, at the Pompidou Center a couple of years ago a an exhibition mm-hmm. the front of Bacon and Books, I think it was called. And that was, unfortunately, I couldn't get to see it because it kept getting shut down with the Gilets Jaunes protests and things like that. And unfortunately, uh, finally closed before I got a chance to see it. But the, yeah, I I found that very sort of informative um, reading the kind of uh, writers that he admired. So sort of Nietzsche seemed to be his formative kind of, I don't know, would you say philosophical or literary influence on him?
1: I he he I think definitely Nietzsche is the is the is the dominant philosophical influence and but I think there's a I think he identified with Nietzsche mm-hmm. in a way who was a uh, sickly man, thwarted, could never quite finish things, um, I, I, and and who who really wanted to create another kind of uh, culture in, mm-hmm. in Western culture. So I think he he really and and who and who also loved the ancient Greeks. I mean I think that. Bacon was always trying to get past the Christian civilization get Mm -hmm. earlier to especially the Greeks. And as you say, um, in the 40s, a very formative period for him, uh, he especially became interested in Aeschylus, who who was the least polished and the most self-taught of the of the of the great uh, dramatists of that time or that period. And he identified with that. So he didn't want to be Sophocles, who was a smoother sort of writer he wanted to be this primitive self taught archaic uh, powerful pre christian human sacrifice kind of guy you know he wanted to get re- reach that source of power, and so did Nietzsche Nietzsche was also uh, absorbed in, in that kind of power
0: experience. Mm. And was that uh, part of the sort of the, the research of the book? W- did you go to the texts that were sort of foundational for Francis and the writers that were important to him? And
2: sort of and absolutely. read them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it was a thrill. I studied uh, English literature and read the the Greek playwrights, but you know, to go back and read Aeschylus with a, an mm. eye to seeing how Francis Bacon uh, looked at him.
1: Well, and especially the the book about Aeschylus that was so important to Bacon, called uh, what was it? Aeschylus in His Style. Uh, yes, by, by WB Stuff, Stanford. Stanford, yeah. Uh, I, 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 and I, you know, it's now a forgotten book, I suppose, mostly, but but I read it uh, and Annalyn did too, and it's a, it's a marvelous book. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such a contemporary book because as I was saying earlier, it stresses <clears throat> the, uh, the, the the importance of of power and strength as opposed to finesse and tea parties, you know? Mm-hmm. It was a sort of an anti-tea party book written by a, <laughs> the Regis Professor of Classics at, <laughs> at, at, in Dublin. Uh, and and it, it, it's also cited many contemporary writers, you know? Hey Mark,
2: watch the Tea Party thing because uh, you know, Aeschylus was the antithesis of a Tea Party kind of oh, guy. That's what I'm
1: saying. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. In, no, but, but e- book-
2: Euripides no, and in- Sophocles are, were also weren't Tea Party guys. But but, uh, he was no, much. But he, he was he much wanted, more blood he wanted, and gore.
1: Yes. He, well, he he wanted the most essential, not just blood and gore, but the most essential kind of statement of that, and which is often the most primitive, mm. and which also would suit a self taught
0: and of course one of the sort of contemporary writers which with who he had a friendship with with and who is a very sort of uh important writer for for this bookshop as well was William Burroughs um who he met who he knew in Tangier and I think they they met and they they kept in contact for uh the the rest of <clears throat> um the rest of their lives and it's sort of I, it was something I never heard about before like we I mean, particularly at the bookshop we have a lot we know a lot about the time that Burroughs spent uh in Paris I mean some of the Naked Lunch was composed here but the um I had no idea that they 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 knew each other that they they were friends but it's it made a lot of sense that sort of that that Bacon would be attracted to Burroughs and Burroughs to Bacon They're like, there's a lot of overlap not just in their um their interest but I think in their in their aesthetic as well.
2: Well, of the literary world in Tangier at that time, you know, Ginsburg and Paul Bowles. um, And uh, uh, the one that Bacon really obviously felt an affinity with was Burroughs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was a wonderful later meeting of Burroughs and Bacon um, in London. And I don't know whether you know about that. They did a a television show Mm -hmm. together. And by that point, Burroughs was getting quite uh, frail and fragile. And so there's this image of Bacon Kind of uh, arm underneath Burroughs' elbow, helping his elderly friend across mm-hmm. the street, and and you have to say, oh my god, that is the Beats, <laughs> and there's Burroughs, <laughs> and they're oh, yeah, both old. <laughs> old.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was like, it, I mean, and then and then and then Bacon in his studio makes some tea, so it's like two aunts having tea, it's mm-hmm. a bit uh, a, a bit odd. But I, you know, I, I think when Bacon looked at Burroughs, he saw maybe the one person in his life who was as radical or even more so mm-hmm. in the way he lived as, as Bacon himself was. Um, I think he was astounded by this deadpan American mm-hmm. who, who, who seemed to have a, a absolute indifference to so many things that other people found important. Mm-hmm. And I think they were both, you know, uh, amazed to find a, a comrade in that way because they, 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 they both had such a such a remarkably eccentric relationship to the larger world. I, I don't think Bacon thought anything of Bacon uh, of uh, Burroughs' uh, sci-fi fantasies mm-hmm. and those strange kinds of things that, that, that Burroughs was about. But it was simply the presence of the man, mm-hmm. the str- you know in, in his little suit and his tie and his, <laughs> his strange sayings. I think that astounded Bacon. Yeah. Well I, mean, I think
2: one of our favorite moments in in uh you know researching the book was going to Tangier because you know the 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 legend of the the Tangier of expats is right mm-hmm. up there with Montparnasse in Paris you know and so just kind of sinking our way into the English colony there and Mm. between the mountains sort of the kind of uh, aristos on the mountain and then the uh, soco chico where you know of course bacon hung out that was really really fun but there's one other interesting thing uh, I want to bring up about Tangier Mm. Uh, Paul and Jane Bowles were there you know Mm. along with everybody else Um, and bacon wasn't that taken by Paul Bowles, but he certainly liked Jane Mm. Bowles, and this gets into one theme of our book that I really wanted to bring Mm. up, which is women in Bacon's life, because because Mm. that is that is completely virgin territory, as we could say. because it's sort of Sonia Orwell, people knew Mm. about uh, Bacon's friendship with her, but it it goes so much beyond that. And Isabel Rothsthorne, a a fellow painter, who of course at one time was Giacometti's uh, mistress, knew everybody on the left bank and the right bank. You know, She was one of the toasts of Paris uh, during and after the war. she was very good friends with bacon, and so you 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 see this this thread unspooling through bacon's life of the powerful, important women he liked, mm-hmm. beginning with his granny supple back okay, in so. Ireland and I guess I had a particularly illuminating time you know going it, it's sort of exploring down that mm-hmm. um alley because what bacon bacon liked women mm-hmm. a little known fact
0: that <laughs> not seem- just Muriel. It seemed to be sort of in the sort of um, the Venn diagram of women in Bacon's life that he grew close to. There seemed to be the thing where they all overlapped seemed to be in this kind of spiritedness. In fact, it wasn't there was there was was always sort of the very sort of assertive women and women who were sort of like were not were not afraid of sort of engaging with life. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. No, they were they were rules breakers in their time. The women that he liked. They Mm -hmm. were people. Who, uh, who just lived their lives as they wanted, despite the consequences, which is of course so difficult for women then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in, in Paris, I mean, Madame Bocatin is, yeah. is uh, a vital figure. Uh, we don't know that much about her, but uh, she certainly taught Bacon French mm-hmm. and uh, gave him a welcome hand in Paris when, when he didn't have many.
2: And also Madge Garland, lest we forget, Madge Garland is a, a character who never played a part in in Bacon's past before now. But Madge Garland had been, you know, she was lesbian. She was fired from British Vogue because she was lesbian. Uh, but she had this great network of of lesbians in Paris, of whom, as you know, there were many, <laughs> and uh, and and so she was also instrumental in in you know Bacon furthering. Bacon's design career. Um, you know, she wrote a great article in 1930 called The 1930 Look in in uh, British uh, Design and began the, the whole article with Francis Bacon's show of, uh, you know, he had a show at his studio at Queensberry mm-hmm. Muse. So again, women come in, you know, into focus much more uh, in Bacon's yeah, life I, here.
1: And, and so, so does careerism in a way, because, you know, artists never want to be thought to be tainted in any way by 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 ordinary ambitions you know they, it must be that they're, they they want to be the genius who's discovered and then other people show their work but never for a moment would they try to cultivate somebody or do any of these things right um of course that's a lie that's a it's a sentiment uh and bacon uh was like that too he was he was indifferent to many things but his career was not one of them and he <laughs> he, he was not uh, he was not he he was good at cultivating people and also not cultivating them in a way that impressed them. Mm. You know, I mean, a, a, in the English establishment, Bacon uh, showed no particular interest in, in hanging around with the fancy people and the, the fancy people noticed, mm. you know, they, they were impressed that he didn't do that. Now, where's the, where's the, where's the nub in that? Where's the truth? Where's who, where, who's manipulating whom? It's not altogether clear uh bacon was uh was, was a was very good at managing his mm-hmm. career often enough
2: well we were astounded by the correspondence that you know we dug up for both you know that his tape ret- first second tate retrospective and also his, his retrospective um or show at the met in 1975 mm-hmm they control. I mean, he was in there uh, trying to get the curators he wanted, the exact hangings. You know, he even went into the Met at night to rehang his show that Henry Galsall had had hung. I mean, who would have ever thought that Bacon, you know, oh, he sort of glided along, um, Um, was so fiercely controlling of his own image and career.
0: I I don't have the exact details in my notes here, but where he also threatened to withhold some of his works from an exhibition because he didn't like the text that was going to be in the catalogue. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yes, that, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. That, was, uh, that was at the, at the Tate, the second mm. uh, retrospective uh, with Richard Francis. Yes, that was, uh, I mean, he, he loathed the idea of all these academic termites kind of going in and eating through his, his own view <laughs> of, of himself and his work. You know, they were going to go back and consult original sources. They were going to do the whole academic thing. Uh, 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 they were going to look at every single painting and try to describe its sources. It's proven also that he couldn't, he couldn't bear that thought. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it was partly that it was a loss of control. Partly that he thought that's not the way his paintings should be looked at mm-hmm. you know they should be looked at more viscerally and immediately uh, but also that uh, that he was an elderly man and this was going to be his monument and mm-hmm. he couldn't stand the
0: idea of anyone else doing it mm-hmm. there's um, we, we won't, don't have too much more time and there <laughs> are several things I do want to uh, to, to talk with you about um, the first one is just picking up something that you said earlier mark about uh, getting past um, the sort of the Christian culture, um, which is obviously definitely a sort of a, a fundamental part of Bacon. And yet at the same time, kind of Christian iconography, whether that be the, the crucifixion or the sort of the representations of uh, the popes, um, and even just, the, I guess, the use of the triptych in a way, it's a very much a kind of a, a sort of a, a crucifixion uh, dynamic in itself. Mm-hmm. And yet that was one of the things that sort of baffled me quite a lot about Baker was it sort of I I expected because of this kind of presence of the religious iconography, for there to be a real sort of preponderous religion or religiosity in his background, and I didn't get that sense particularly from his childhood, or or or, that the the sort of like the religious education was something that had particularly um, sort of uh, psychologically crippled him or something like, and I'm just. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I said, I'm still left a little bit sort of uh, uncertain about the attraction of this sort of Christian, specifically iconography, to to Francis Bacon. I think
1: he was fundamentally interested in, in human sacrifice, in mm. sacrifice, the idea of sacrifice, which, of course, is very important to ancient and classical culture. He was also interested in bullfights, for example, another yeah, of form of <clears throat> ritual, ritualized sacrifice. But the Christian sacrifice is part of that, isn't it? Mm. I, so I think it's best seen as as a, an available um, means, uh, inherited and, and resonant means that Bacon could use to pursue his interest in this idea of human beings being sacrificed before uh, great forces that they can't control. Mm-hmm. And I, as I said, I think we think it goes back initially to pre-Christian uh, sources, but it occurs in Christianity too, especially in the crucifixion.
2: Mm-hmm. And also a, a wonderful quote, Helen Lesore, uh, the <clears throat> art gallery dealer, and, and she was also a critic. Uh, Helen Lesore uh, wrote an essay about Bacon and she said, <clears throat> um, if I'm quoting this correctly, the very intensity of his disbelief led to belief and she huh. saw him as a sort of post christ you know post christian but intensely uh, driven by some sense of religion or religious force mm. or you know something that was beyond just mere mortal clay
1: yes you, you have the feeling in this work that traditions are coming apart the western tradition is coming apart it's like old velvet fraying mm. he, he the old master There's this old masterly fraying quality. There's this Christian fraying quality, the sense of great empty rooms where uh, the light is not quite right. And uh, there's bits of luminous intensity and and then other areas of just sort of ordinariness. Uh, It's this, you know, the sense of an empty room of a haunted house, that Mm. kind of thing.
0: Do you think that was also partly um, to do with his kind of, Fascination is maybe too strong a word, but sort of interest in um, Nazi iconography as well, because that, that sense. Because I, I suppose the Nazis were in very, you know, <laughs> uh, much inspired by the kind of sort of the classical, you know, perversion of the kind of classical ideas of sort of sacrifice and and things like that. Um, yes,
2: and, and remember Nietzsche was so important to the Nazis, of and of course it was essential to Francis Bacon. But
1: unfairly, unfairly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Nazis really a have- Terribly abused, Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, of um, course,
2: but but Bacon, you know, base, Bacon was riveted by anything to do with that kind of sacrifice and the quality of, um, you, you know, man as 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 beast. That that was re- that really was essential to his <laughs> thinking.
1: Yeah, but he saw he saw that he saw Nazis as the beast. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. so he wasn't he was not one of those artists who was attracted to nazi ideology at least we didn't Mm -hmm. find any indication of that maybe for a brief moment in the 30s but he 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 showed those great spaces those uh, lenny reconciled spaces as 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 monstrous as dangerous as and the and the nazi leaders themselves as animal like Mm. so he he was not a he was not in any way pro
0: Well, that was one thing I found sort of actually very refreshing about Francis Bacon was how unattracted to ideology he seemed generally, actually. Like there was sort of, because yes. I think one of the things that sort of seems to destroy so many 20th century artists and writers is that the moment that they hitch themselves to Stalinism or something like that, and you just sort of, ah, oh, you get this sense of kind of I could get this feeling of some type of disappointment. It's like, oh, I thought you were a really interesting, complex, nuanced figure, and then you were seduced by, yeah. by this. And yet Bacon seems sort of, yeah, quite detached from all of that and quite uninterested in political ideology, at least. Well, absolutely. in the in the classic
2: sense of, of political ideology, you're absolutely right. But, you know, another interesting contrarian thing about Francis Bacon was that he was a, he was a Tory at heart. He was very conservative. Mm. He hated, you know, social welfare and all those things. And, you know, people sometimes got so, angry at him because he would voice this.
1: It's not it's not that he hated social welfare. He actually believed in he, he once said that he believed in the Christian idea of, of helping others. He just didn't believe that human beings were capable of it, and usually. And what really annoyed him was uh, that self-admiring pity that uh, that that certain kind of well-off Westerners have. They admire themselves greatly for taking an interest in the working class or the poor, mm-hmm. and. He saw that self-admiration, and that's what he, I think, really was bothering him. It wasn't helping the poor so much that bothered him.
2: Well, I have a slightly different view of that. I think that that Bacon really was an old-fashioned Tory. If you read the letters to his family, you know he was constantly uh, moaning on about, you know. Foreigners moving to London, and and uh, you know what are all these social welfare programs? So no, I do think that. But you know, England, English culture is filled with these kind of harumphing mm-hmm. uh, people, and and yet again, a great contradiction, isn't it? That Francis Bacon, the, the the homosexual sacred monster of Soho, and all of that, you know, at 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 heart. He could also be uh, a, a Tory, and that's a, one of the uh, wonderful contradictions about him. But
1: your your fundamental point is right. He 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 w- he was not an ideologue, and he thought that ideologies in general were just a uh, a, a crutch type of nonsense. Yeah, a crutch. Yeah.
0: Which, in a way, sort of um, yeah, sort of does as a sort of like an archetypal artist of the twentieth century. So sort of that's a, sort of the the anti-ideologue is um, kind of the artist. <laughs> well,
1: you know, was. he would he would. He, as much as he admired Michel Leris, uh, which he did, he idolized him almost. He laughed about that the Mandarin love of, say, Maoism. Mm. You know, these these very well-off literary figures in France living in the most splendid flats on the <laughs> Seine, uh, as, sort of uh, sort of admiring Mao and and the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did think that was nonsense.
0: Uh, as we say here, plus ça change. <laughs> <laughs> um, the final thing that i I would like to talk about is, and we we touched a little bit on his personal relationships with with sort of spirited women earlier, uh, but I think one of the things that sort of before reading the biography that I knew one of the only things I think I knew about uh bacon's uh private life was the kind of i guess the kind of rather sort of prurient uh details about his relationship with Peter Lacey, which has sort of had sort of become part of the sort of the general culture and like, and there were, you know, things that people, uh, I don't know, people seem to kind of categorize that sort of relationship, uh, you know, as the kind of the bacon and then this kind of the, the dashing RAF man who would, uh, you know, who, who would, who would beat him essentially. Um, and, the, and sort of it seemed to be something which had sort of almost become a kind of a, a cultural truism, that that was something we knew about Francis Bacon. And then, uh, one of the things I really appreciated about your biography is the fact that you sort of, what comes out of it is this incredibly complex, nuanced sort of unpicking of that, uh, of, of of that cliched representation of this relationship. And I'm I'm just curious to know that when you when you embarked on this, I'm I mean I'm sure you you knew the sort of the same Peter Lacey stories as sort of like as as everybody else. Was it? Was that something that you were very sort of concerned about was to do this and the other kind of personal relationships in his life justice to kind of to abstract them from the, um, the, the sort of the, the flattening that had, had occurred to them in the sort of the general, general culture?
1: Flattening is the word. We wanted to make all these characters round. Mm -hmm. Uh, especially the important minor characters and especially the lovers. Mm -hmm. So yes, uh, Peter Lacey um, was presented in a very flat way as a RAF fighter pilot, which he wasn't, um, uh, and as a cruel sadist. And his voice doesn't come down in time except through one letter, really. And through an interview we did with some relatives of his. And through that, and through also forensically looking at, Bacon was always even in the early 60s was asking, "How's you know? Where's Peter? They'd, they'd broken up again, but he was also asking, how is how is, how is he? So we could see that it was a it was a not just a a a sadomasochistic drunken relationship. Mm-hmm. It had those qualities to be sure, but it also had all these other elements, and we wanted to to include those too. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and the same goes for George Dyer. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we made an effort to to talk to his relatives and a very colorful lot, I must say. But um, why would you you know, the stereotype was was so unfair, both to Peter Lacey and and to Bacon. You know, mm-hmm. there was so much more to Peter Lacey. And we, we just had to set the record straight and, and reveal the rounded you know, relationship for what it was.
1: Also, how how it, it's so interesting that Bacon, of course, he had uh, many one night stands and he was interested in, in rough trade and those things. But but he also was interested in sustained relationships, mm-hmm. and he really almost never gave up one of his sustained relationships. He could never quite break off, so he 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 uh, he complained all the time, but he didn't really abandon Lacey, not altogether. And the same is true about uh, his other important loves. So he had both this uh, kind of persona of uh, of rough trade and and all those great stories, but also this more domestic side. Mm. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting to hold those two ideas in your mind at once.
0: Mm-hmm. Which seems to be a kind of a repeated theme in this conversation, actually, the kind of that Bacon yes. does seem to sort of, yes, yeah, sit between uh, two different sort of sometimes, two different kind of ideas or positions which might be considered, contradictory in some way, and he seems to sort of to embody both of them well if you want to work. go
2: back to the Richard Ellman where you know we, we spoke earlier of, of his Oscar Wilde you know his Oscar Wilde emerges as as the also the bon vivant the the precursor of Francis Bacon but there's also the the, the private Oscar Wilde you know mm-hmm. and the sadness of the of the late years the b- b- poignance of his death in Paris. And so there you have, a, 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 you know, you see again a figure that has, has become historically, oh, Oscar Wilde, the dandy, mm. um, same thing, you know, and, and Francis Bacon, the sacred monster. Well, that's really not the entire story mm-hmm. now, is it?
0: Mm. That really is more or less all we've got time for. But one last thing I would like to indulge you, which I'm afraid is qu- quite a sort of trite question, but yes, I say, please indulge me. I'm just so curious to know if each of you have a favorite bacon. Like maybe it was your favorite bacon before you started writing the biography and it's remained so, or perhaps it was something one that you discovered in writing and it has become your your sort of your 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 favorite or a particular sort of uh particularly important bacon uh to each of you.
2: That's easy for me, so I'll let Mark uh, answer for himself. But mine, mine, indubitably is portrait of Isabel Archer standing in a, uh-huh. Isabel Russell standing in a street in Soho. Interesting slip of tongue, Isabel Archer, <laughs> and Henry James. But there you have a fantastic woman, you know, a, a, like a, a great dame standing, looking as if she's, you know, acknowledging the crowds uh, who are behind her. Very, very confident, and uh, you know, there, there to me in a nutshell is Frances. Bacon, giving us a very powerful woman. And I, I just love that. And it's big. You know, it's a big, bold, and in my vote, one of the top 10 paintings that Bacon ever painted.
1: Mm. Uh, I have to say that I don't really think that way. I, I don't think of uh, favorites or, or saying this over that. Um, what I like is I think you have to go with Bacon to his most difficult work, Mm-hmm. So I would say, uh, as difficult as it is, <clears throat> you've got to look at Crucifixion 1962, <clears throat> which is uh, absolutely horrifying work, but it's sort of the essence, in many ways, of Bacon's uh, project. Um, but then I like to keep that in, in my mind while also imagining all these other more subtle pictures. There's mm-hmm. um, the self-portraits, the the gentler pictures, the pictures in Africa, the incredible picture of... Uh, of uh, two wrestlers or two figures of mm. uh, two men having sex in 1953. Uh, that painting that Freud kept over his bed until he died. Uh, that painting is uh, is something that's unforgettable once seen. So I don't know. I, I, I just get this, um, I don't know. They, they kind of, they create a, a series of echoes in my mind. And, and What, I, what I, you
2: have I, is many favorites, Mark, but
1: oh, <laughs> I want to, I, wanna,
2: I, I I, I also also I, I also have
1: one side I also, I also have one side. Hey, I exactly. That.
2: But the, my, my my other candidate is something that is almost unknown. It's called elephant fording a river, and it came out of uh, Bacon's. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of his South African veldt paintings, and it's just one tusk of the elephant. Gleams white as it's fording, you know, this big, this massive form is fording the river against the, uh, the background of impenetrable t- trees. And there's one white tusk. And it, it's just a marvelous
1: painting. Most, most extraordinary sense of silence you could imagine in paint. Mm.
0: On which note that is <laughs> all we've got time for. Um, <laughs> Mark, Annalyn, thank you so much um, to our listeners out there. I can't recommend this biography enough. As I say, it's a sort of. Uh, it may be a thunker, but it is, uh, what is probably the most uh, compelling readable thunker of a, of a book I, I've read in a, in a long time. Um, Francis Bacon Revelations, of course, is available from uh, the Shakespeare and Company uh, online store. Um, Mark, Annalyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.